Welcome to Thesis, a podcast about trends in higher education systems in international spheres, exploring the field of higher education across the world. I'm your host, Kelly Davis. Today we are talking about the introduction of tuition fees for non-European students in Sweden and the impact of the new policy from 2011. We speak with Per A. Nilsson, an analyst at the planning office of Umeå University and former member of the Association of Swedish Higher Education Institutions Expert Group for Internationalization Issues, and Professor Lars Weston, professor in regional economics at Umeå University's Center for Regional Science. This was a great conversation between myself and the guests, talking about the impact of raising the price of higher education for international students, specifically degree-seeking, non-European economic area or European Union students, had some consequences I truthfully wasn't expecting. It was a chance for me to ask questions I've been pondering since Norway introduced similar fees for international students last year, which we'll talk about next time. On behalf of Thesis, we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome listeners to another episode of Thesis and to another episode of season three, where we are discussing the flows of students across national borders. I'm here today with my two guests from Umeå University in the middle eastern region of Sweden on the border of Finland, uh, Dr. Nilsson and Professor Weston, who are two of the leading researchers on flows of international students into Sweden. Dr. Nilsson and Professor Weston, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. One of the reasons we wanted to discuss Sweden is, in this season is because our most of our podcast team is based in Norway, uh, where fees for international students have been more recently introduced, and there's been a lot of debate around it. We've had debates, we've had conversations amongst ourselves, of course, especially being international students. But it's not just within the Norwegian context of higher education, but also in comparing the decision and its implementation practices as well to other countries around the world, but especially to the Nordic countries. And Sweden is one of of these Nordic countries, which introduced fees for international students in 2011, um, which is what we are here to talk about today. So we're going to launch into this conversation and, and first discuss the context. What led to the introduction of fees for international students in 2011? Why were they introduced? Well, first of all, it was a political in- initiative started around the, the millennium that's leading uh, politicians especially in the Social Democratic Party, thought that uh, being able to offer free education for everyone in the world became uh, difficult to explain for the taxpayers because uh, most of the universities in Sweden are publicly run, so it's financed by tax money. So it started as a political initiative. And and it's not all international students. It's only for non-Europeans and students. And what does this maybe say about international students and how they're perceived in Sweden, students who are coming from outside of the European Union and and European economic area? Are they regarded as important in the Swedish context? Yes, I guess I would say they have been and still is and is to be very important to make the universities more international and they are also very attractive in the labor market and this is so that was one of the discussion points that Sweden as many other countries of course but Sweden needs lots of well-educated people from abroad as an import of human capital Mm. and that was caused and was part of discussion what was the meaning of having feast on those international students 
I want to ask also, what about what then would draw in students if there are fees involved? So, I mean, are, does Swedish have a competitive edge, so to speak, kind of on the international landscape when it comes to drawing in students into higher education? Do they have many English programs? Kind of what was the thinking behind Okay, we're going to uh, we're going to bring in fees, which is going to drive some students away, but we still may we still need these students. What was kind of the idea behind students may still come because of what exactly? Well, I think first of all we have seen the development of, of courses being taught in English and also full programs, and it started already in the nineties. And um, right now, if you talk about uh, courses on the advanced le- level, I think around sixty percent are being taught in, in English, and also the literature many times are in, in English, even if the teaching language is Swedish. So we have seen this continue now for two decades. And uh, I, I think that also that um, Sweden can offer a good, uh, a high quality when it comes to higher education. So, so I think uh, we went into this reform with uh, the insight that we would manage in this competition. But, but of course, we, we, we were also talking about that it would be difficult for students from low-income countries to be able to enter Swedish higher education. But there was one can add also that uh, after the fees was introduced, were introduced, uh, then I mean there had been great development in the supply, so to say, offer of English courses at universities, and uh, a tremendous that uh, was part of the tremendous change, I would say also. And then also at that time, I mean it was this relative competition between the different countries that also have changed during the time when then Sweden had free non-fee, so to say, then. That, of course, Sweden became very attractive for some students. But as, at the same time, there were other processes, like it was more difficult to get into the United States. And so and so the, the, the competitive advantage of Sweden was quite strong for students from all parts of the world. But all, that was not always good for the teaching, neither. So, so it took a long time to check the precon competence of students and so on, what uh, quite high degree of dropouts and so on, what's that sort of uh, problems that followed with uh, that uh, uh, within some international students also. So that's really part of a change. And there were different views on this, that some only saw that Sweden, I mean, a Swedish talking, non-English speaking country should have a disadvantage compared to England and the United States and others. And of course, that's always the case, but that this disadvantage have, so to say, been more minor nowadays when universities are more English speaking. I think that's a really good point. And kind of what you're bringing up is that it's it's not all happening in a vacuum. It's There's so no. many different factors that make students want to go to a country or leave the country that they're in. And I think it was really interesting to see the data that you had, that you were both looking at uh, in terms of where students were coming from. I mean, even though there were kind of, talk about more, more about this in a moment, there was a drop in students who ended up being fee-paying students, but you saw a lot of students still coming from 
India, from China, uh, from Bangladesh, I thought was super interesting. And so I think it just speaks, that data speaks also to, you know, what the geopolitical factors, there are financial factors, and you brought up such a good point, it was harder to get into maybe some of the bigger sort of, the bigger takers of incoming students, the bigger receiver countries. So really good points. Uh, And I think now let's talk about the impacts then of the fees. So there was this concept, okay, we're going, Sweden will develop a sort of competitive advantage. They started offering more English courses, um, which was kind of a continuation of what they were doing. So what when the policy was implemented or, you know, and thereafter, what are students paying for? And, you know, what are they paying? What does the tuition look like? How did the government or how did the universities decide how much students are paying in tuition? It's very regulated because when you're a public run university, the, the government Pay you uh, pay each university a fee uh, grounded on, on each students. So th- that was sort of the the basic that that we took the same price of the international students and added on an overhead on administrative costs. But it depends very much what you're studying. If you, for instance, go to business school or if you go to medical school or art school. So there is a a different price tag depending on what you're studying. But I I think what has happened now that the Swedish crown crown is kind of weak compared to the dollar and Mm -hmm. other other currencies that then uh, students from the U.S. think is quite cheap, even if we think uh, the price tag is quite high. Yeah, that's a great point. I definitely, I think when comparing it to some of the costs, for, especially for international students, or if you're looking at the U.S. just generally um, of higher education, the Swedish prices certainly still seem, I don't know if you would call it manageable, but <laughs> they're a lot lower. Uh, so you mentioned something about administrative overhead. So there's the cost of the student. So that's kind of factored in. But but where in general is that money going towards that international students pay to the universities? Yes, they, they are not allowed to use those money for other students. So it's, that's very regulated. So if, if you have some sort of profit, so to say, from the fees, you have to put it into the courses or other things uh, connected with the students from that um, uh, education, so to say. So you cannot finance the rest of the university and, and be, so to say, a, a company, a business, <laughs> making that sort of business out of the, the fees students. So you have to put it back into the education. So with this, then say you have, uh, you know, you have international students who are studying physics you can put the money back into the physics department in general or does it have to have some sort of orientation specifically to the international students i think what we can offer is support and i know that some universities in sweden also can offer scholarships and grants and so forth but but it stays sort of within the system of fee paying students sure and i think we'll talk about the scholarships a bit more later Now, looking at the numbers of the students, at first they dropped, which makes sense. But if you can tell us a bit about how what the what those numbers looked like, how much did did the number of of international students drop? And then what happened after that? What happened between 2011 and now? First of all, the reform was targeting non-European students and that group 
drop with 80% in 2011. And uh, it has now picked up. So, well, the COVID-19 was sort of a disturbance, but uh, you can say that the numbers have picked up to about the same level as before. But what we have seen is that we now have more European students than we had before the reform in 2011. And that can also be connected. Of course, in Europe, there is more movements among students i think that has increased quite drastically but it can also be connected with that the universities generally develop their english courses and uh, taking care of international students and especially some of the larger universities and, and engineering schools has been very successful in that and that has made also sweden as more interesting as a Sit, or, or as a nation for studies for other European uh, students. And that's also connected to, I mean, when you visit a, a Swedish university or engineering, engineering school now compared to at that time, the whole campus is more international generally, and you, English is a very common language, so to say. So, so that has really been a change. Yeah. It's definitely an interesting development. And I want to talk more about the higher education institutional or university's uh, standpoint on this. But first, I, since we're talking about the numbers, also in the, the data that you shared with me, the number of degree-seeking students really had a drop. What I thought was interesting was the number of just credit seeking, I think it was called, which I kind of assumed means primarily exchange students. Um, That's correct. Yeah, the, that number did, definitely did not drop nearly as, as significantly, but it did drop a little bit. And I'm just curious if the implementation of fees, if there was something around that policy change, maybe they got swept up in the media. Did that have anything to do with what was a very, very small kind of dip in the number of exchange students? Well, if you go back to the 90s when uh, the Erasmus program was new, then it was a big curiosity among students to go on Erasmus to Germany or France. Or, and I, I think uh, the, the new generation of students, uh, they, they like to be internationally oriented, but uh, some uh, question to go on exchange studies. But it is also very complicated if you have a Swedish context. Uh, we are quite generous with uh, study loans. So many Swedish students, uh, they study abroad without going as an exchange student. So, I mean, uh, I, didn't, I don't know if that's an explanation, but um, in this paper we have been writing now, we have been focusing on the fee-paying students. So I think that that's sort of the main focus. So uh, exchange students is a, little, is, is a di different uh, situation. A bit of a different ball game, as we say, yeah. or we play baseball, I think. But <laughs> uh, yeah, th no, that, that makes sense. Thank you for making that su suggestion and pointing out that context piece. So when it comes to the university perspective, how then are Swedish higher education institutions getting the foreign students who are fee paying in the first place? Do they have more recruitment processes or what you know, what's kind of driving them forward and making them have success since that 
that first drop. What one can say is that when the reform was implemented in 2011, the Swedish higher education institutions, the universities, did start out with different ambitions. The, the big universities, the really big universities in Sweden, have been much more successful in re- recruiting uh, tuition fee students. One, one reason, of course, that they're big, they, they have a lot of things they can offer, but they have also been working very hard targeting uh, tuition fee students. And you can show that it has really paid off. And then you have universities in Sweden who have, I shouldn't use the word ignoring, but they have not been working so hard with targeting, promoting their education towards this group of students. So it sounds like it could have to do with the specific goals or strategy of the higher education institution in question. And some of them opt for, we want more international students, uh, and some of them don't. Do you think that the kind of the fee paying aspect plays a role in that? Or is it primarily just institutions being towards towards maybe more of a internationalization strategy? I guess it's, I mean, primarily, I think uh, at that time, also part of the internationalization of the Swedish uh, higher education and the research and so that uh, it became more important for, for the university leaderships or higher education leaderships to compare themselves with uh, other international universities or so the ranked list and so that was became very 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 important for their position so to say and that was also important for their possibility to raise money and to be part of european networks and so to raise the uh, european foundings and so so i think it was uh, professionalization towards internationalization of research and education starting up at the same time or intensified at the same time. Those, uh, and then of course, the larger engineering schools and the larger universities that already was quite strong also beca- became even stronger because they had all the experience and apparatus to take care of this. So They almost had maybe the resources yeah, yeah. And, and they had the networks and they sure. had, yeah, whatever. And then, of course, it's also, be, if, uh, as Per said, what sort of education you offer. I mean, if it's, uh, yeah, of course, medicine, some type of engineering, and so can be very, what was it more easy to compete with internationally? Absolutely. And some there was another finding that you both had pointed out and in the in the uh the research points that you shared with me that you mentioned that the that you felt that the educational system had become more efficient. Um I'm curious if you can touch on what you meant by that. Well, before the re- re- reform we, we had problems with uh, dropouts that uh, we we admitted students from uh, countries in Asia and, and uh, universities we didn't know very much about. Uh, and they came and they were not successful with their studies. They have difficulty in uh, passing the tests and receiving the grades. But when we introduced tuitions, it became much more important to be more careful in the selections of students. And I think that we can see now that uh, the achievement rates among tuition fee students is very high. Uh, and um, I think that's one way of explain, explaining efficiency. Yeah, that's yes, I, I also think if I can add, I think before, earlier, there, there was actually from in some countries, there were, so to say, brokers or what you 
would say like, that, that helped students to get into the Swedish universities. So that, that was sort of uh, people that was living on that, uh, companies almost. So, so and that made that uh, quite a lot of people came perhaps without any understanding of what the studies meant, so to say. And once again, they didn't have the competence to success in the studies, but that has really changed. That's really interesting. So this, the introduction of fees kind of based on your arguments here are that they simultaneously kind of, it limited the pool of people who are applying in the first place, but also provided the universities the capability to, if they so chose, to kind of strategize how they like which international students they let in who that they, they let in and perhaps some of those fees went towards actually having more of that process to be able to make those selections yeah but on the other hand also there were some cases where international students that had paid fees they were not satisfied with education with the teaching and wanted to get the fees back and that was a very important signal and they got the money back so that really was a signal into the university system that previously the swedish student or international student that was not paying fees okay we, that's we, we don't have sort of the basis or the arguments to complain here really even if they were they were complaining about something that was was not the case that they could could some get some compensation for that. But after that, those uh, cases then then I think very much was shaped up, so to say. That's super interesting. I think coming from my position as a from being from the U.S. and having experienced U.S. universities where. Yes, my education costs a lot of money. And then coming to the University of Oslo, where my education barely costs any money uh, from, you know, from my direct private pocket, um, apart from living expenses, obviously. But that it is such an interesting dynamic, what almost when you aren't paying very much or comparatively very much, it, what it does to how you perceive the kind of services, if, well, I say that right from my U.S. perspective, the education that you're getting or how, you know, any of the structures around it, how it really shapes your perception. And there is kind of this, I don't want to call it, I think to call it a silencing effect is a bit extreme, but there's kind of this element of you've, yeah, you feel like you can't complain. You're going, oh, this is so frustrating in some cases, but who am I to say anything? So I think that's very interesting, but it, it's a perfect lead into the question I was going to ask is if fee paying students then have higher expectations and it sounds like the answer is yes. Uh, so I'd be curious to know just what are some of those expectations that, you know, why did some students early on get money back? What has changed in the system to make sure that international students are getting the kind of experience that they were expecting or hoping for being fee paying students? Well, but I think all Swedish universities that have been working with is quality assurance, quality assurance of programs and courses, and we want to give good education to all students. So it's it's much more a discussion about that than previously. And I think the whole system has sort of shaped up in that sense. Do you think that this has also improved the quality for Swedish students as well? Yes. 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 Yeah, and we can also add that, I mean, the, the other change that has come in Sweden is the, the risk of unemployment, actually, from that you don't get a job after you've had. I mean, it seems, uh, sounds strange, so to say, in a, in a country that really demands higher education and competence, so to say, but uh, uh, it has been more important 
then in the 70s, 80s, the 90s or so, to you have the need to have the right education. And I think uh, people are more eager to directly after the students get a, a good job. And so, so I think there is has also been a pressure from Swedish students to improve the, the quality and the structure and the information they get from the university, what's the, what will happen next and so over, how, what will, will my exam look like? And so, so the, the situation has been even more competitive. And so to the, and the, the benefits of higher education if in Sweden, if you do the things right, go to the right schools and so have improved generally. So the, yeah. there is a diversity also on, on the labor market, what sort of job you can get and so and the, the career you can have if you have a successful time at the university or just pass through it. I think that it is an interesting point you're bringing up because the other uh, sort of general point is that Sweden, like other countries in Northern Europe, are also, you know, looking at this kind of impending, perhaps, labor shortage. And and so I think it kind of lends to us wondering what exactly is, what has the introduction of these student tuition fees for international students brought to Sweden's economy, thinking both about the kind of more immediate bringing in of students, but then also, I mean, are there drawbacks if there aren't as many students coming from uh, outside of Europe? Or if the numbers are rising, maybe that's not as much of a concern. Well, in our paper, we have, of course, not looked into that so much, but uh, the, the Swedish Institute uh, presented a report, uh, I think it was last year, and they put numbers on how much uh, international students means to the Swedish economy. And of course, uh, that's quite a lot. And I think uh, the greatest uh, advantage for a country like Sweden is if the students stay and start to work in Sweden and becomes tax taxpayers. I think that then it has a big impact on the Swedish economy. But then we also have the, the thing with the migration authorities. And I think that's something that have sort of happened simultaneously that if you go back in time in Sweden, we were a much more open country than we are today because uh, Europe have changed. So now some who wants to stay in Sweden have difficulties in staying because of the legislation we have right now. Yeah, so the, I mean, you have the general refugee. It's very different. I think it's difficult to separate those to be careful what to be sure to what to say. But you have the refugee situation from started from Syria and so once upon a time, and then you have from Africa and you have now Ukrainians and so Sweden. Uh, the number of international students plus refugees and other immigrants have is much larger in Sweden than it was at that time. And and some of them are integrated in, in the Swedish uh, society. And I think that's different between different parts of Sweden, perhaps. And so mm. the east, easy by which they can come into, into companies and so on. But um, the other coin, part of the coin is that for those that really want to get into the Swedish society, it has been more difficult because of the general more negative view on migrants overall. Right. And I think that if any listeners are kind of they are curious to understand more what has been going on, specifically in Sweden, especially, I think, in regards to kind of post-refugee crisis and just very, a very large influx of immigrants, I encourage them to to go um uh, look uh, look into it more do a little bit more research because I, I 
it's certainly has created a lot of tensions uh, and policy changes. And I think that, you know, we can acknowledge that the there's a difference of when you were in some regard, you know, forced to come to a place uh, because circumstances at home were just so bad. Um, and then there's also when you come to a place and you have uh, maybe you you didn't want to leave home, but you have some sort of prospect ahead of you in the ter- in the form of higher education or you came because you wanted you purely just wanted to enjoy the quality higher education you felt that Sweden could offer. And so I think it's we can we are able to separate these these kind of groups of people coming into the country. But what about other stakeholders in the Swedish system, such as industry leaders, um, the Swedish people, politicians? I mean, those are three really big groups and they they may all have different opinions, but how are they kind of positioning international students in this broader conversation? But if you talk, talk about industry, the, the, uh, I mean, r- right now we have a lot of investments uh, in north of Sweden uh, and there is a big demand for engineers and, and uh, technicians and educated people. So they are, you know, trying very hard to find people for those jobs. So they're seeking in Sweden and seeking abroad. So, I mean, there's a shortage of skilled labor. So, so I think that's the, the perspective from the industrial leaders. But at the time when the fees was introduced, they were also skeptical to the fees. They were afraid that uh, the number of international students should um, decline drastically, as it did also. But uh, as we can see now, the total number has always come back to what it was previously. But of course, there is a different distribution of students from different countries and so on. But for the great uh, large um, industries in Sweden that are very export-oriented, Sweden has lots of industries that are very export-oriented. They have always had the demand for an international labor and, and high-skilled labor and ha- have been... Uh, immigration so to say so I don't, I don't think they are those that are uh, definitely they are not uh, those that are against immigration and we don't know we haven't talked to them about the outcome after the fees but uh, I guess uh, I, I don't think they would say nowadays that fees are just guessing fees is the problem I think the legislation on, on becoming a, coming into the Swedish labor market so to say is more and um, tax problems and such things is more an obstacle compared to, to the fees. But there were other groups, you know, the student unions were against this also at that time. And they were uh, they were afraid that uh, this was the first of a set of, of introduction of fees so that uh, the whole uh, system of higher education in Sweden should have fees as is the international trend. But so far, that has not been the case. And we're seeing the same in Norway. It's a bit of a, a mirror in a sense. Um, the students were very, well, the Norwegian students being very um, nervous or afraid that this meant that more fees would come and just kind of being a philosophically uh, contrary sort of piece of legislation or action uh for what they believed their higher education and I think also welfare system is about. So we've talked, we've alluded to it or touched on it a little bit so far, but one of the big concerns is the impact on students who are from middle and low income countries, because while perhaps the Swedish crown may not be, may not be as powerful as the the British pound or the US dollar, uh, it still is a high price, especially if you're coming from 
a country where your currency is valued much, much lower, for example, amongst other factors. So we didn't talk about that. I think now is a good time to sort of talk about what scholarships have been able to be created uh, from some of those international student fees. And are they being, you know, who are they being targeted to? And are there any other potential efforts to increase the, the numbers represented by students who are coming from these middle and low income countries? There are several types of scholarships. There are, uh, the, Swedish, the Swedish Institute has a scholarship, and there are other national scholarships, and there are also lo- local scholarships at each uh, university, and they have their own prerequisites. I, I think that the main focus is to give scholarship to the best students. And you can also say that Sweden as a country cannot offer much of scholarships because if you take students from low-income countries, it's not only to cover the tuition fee. It's also scholarships to cover the, the living costs in Sweden. And then you talk about a lot of money. So I think many who have been working with development countries have been a little sad over this development that previously Sweden have invested a lot in mainly African countries. And uh, that had been difficult to maintain. But on the other hand, we have a lot of PhD students recruited from other countries. I think overall, there are about 60% of all PhD students who have been internationally recruited. And some of them are from low-income countries. The PhD market is certainly its own uh, beast, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Weston, did you have something to add? No, but of course, I mean, the fees and those changes uh, has changed the recruitment pattern from both from countries and from inside the countries of course so, and um, uh, what but we we haven't looked upon that so that uh, i think it's difficult to study that question in detail to say something but um, and it's uh, perhaps uh, we have to wait a while until there can be a development of even stronger scholarships targeted to the best students from the most low-income countries also. So So then in taking all of this in and looking back on the last 12 or so years, what are some main lessons learned that you think we should be taking into account when we think about the what the effects of introducing fees to international students has been in Sweden? What should other countries keep in mind? Well, I mean, there aren't a lot of other countries out there that are in the position to introduce fees, of course. Um, I don't know if there are any, when, well, I guess parts of Germany, but but I mean, generally speaking, especially when we think about, you know, maybe recruitment as well, or how do you get international students? And perhaps the case of Sweden provides some sort of lessons there, but or perhaps in terms of policy. So what are your thoughts? What are what are kind of our main takeaways from what we've seen in Sweden? I think, first of all, when we started to look back to see what was discussed around the time when the tuition fees were introduced, that many was exaggerating the threats and they were underestimating some of the benefits you will receive when you introduce tuition fees. Uh, I think that it was very easy to see when we look back uh, on the arguments at that time. Also from uh, higher education institutions or the universities and schools of engineering, so they were very negative actually. So one important lesson is that of 
it's possible to, to change the teaching system so that you can be more productive and attract international students and, and become an, more international. That's clearly possible. But also that there is, of course, a conservatism within the universities also uh, that, that was shown at that time that they are not so eager to change. And uh, so so for, for that reason, I think, and there's the position of the students became stronger, I would say, both directly from the international students and the signals we talked about, and also that Swedish students became more aware about what sort of demand they could have. So, uh, I, think so, that... So that, I think that's very important that, uh, so to say, the both sides of the education side had to shape up a little and, and did that. Yeah, I think and also, I can add that this is sort of, you can say, the new normal that, that uh, I think the reform now has been accepted and uh, the discussions we had about 10-15 years ago we don't hear, hear much about it and the polit politicians who took the initiative, they are also quite silent and I think the silence means that they are satisfied with the results. Yeah, I think that's an interesting observation. It, it's it, they say that it's real. Once you make something free, you can't take it away. But maybe this is kind of one caveat to that, because based on the arguments that you made at the very beginning, Dr. Nilsson, it was kind of about justifying also the tax dollars and or t tax money and thinking about who's paying for and then benefiting for what. And I think that for me, the one of the most interesting pieces of this is how it how the introduction of international uh, student fees and the way that Swedish universities responded to that actually ended up making things better as well for the experience of Swedish students. So yeah, I think it's a really interesting case. And thank you both for taking the time to share today your the findings from your research. We have just one last question that we like to ask all of our guests, which is who was someone or what was an experience which influenced your own higher education journey or the work that you do today? And uh, we'll start with Dr. Nilsson and then go on to Professor Weston. Well, for me, is that I have a personal experience of living and studying in the United States for two years. And I also worked as the head of the international office at the University for more than 10 years. So, so that, that's my curiosity. Oh, for me, uh, I think it was actually my mother. She had an exam from an art school in Stockholm and, and came here. And she was very clear that I should continue to, to the university. And... There was a university in, in the city, so that was not so difficult. Uh, but then at the university, there also was a, the, was a new professor recruited that were more interested in, in uh, urban economics and cities and creativity and such things. That made me continue within economics, actually. That's great. So that is my, my reason to be here. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. We're very happy to have you here on Thesis. Thank, thank you. you. If you liked what you listened to on Thesis today, please follow the podcast and feel free to leave us a rating or a comment. Links to relevant work by our guests and their contact information can be found in the show notes. Today's thesis episode does not take a position on the issues discussed on the podcast. Opinions expressed on this episode are solely those of the guests or hosts. This podcast is produced and edited by Ekaterina Korinska, Maria Angeles Hidalgo, Ayla Rubenstein, Tracy Waldman, Kelly Davis, Liliana Sofia Riano Sanchez, and Petar Vujicic. Original music is produced by Petter Strom. This podcast was recorded at Helga Engshus at the University of Oslo's Faculty of Educational Sciences. 
Thanks to IDEA, Innovation and Digitalization in Educational Arenas, for their support of this podcast. Thanks for listening to Thesis. We'll talk to you next time.